everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. So here we are. Congratulations for making it through another week in our long, never-ending news cycle, which this past week focused a lot on the election. Specifically, we had the DNC happen over this past week, the past Monday through Thursday. So definitely a lot more focus on the fact that we do still have an election going on. But let me go ahead and start where I always start. And that is with the unemployment numbers. And sadly, sadly, last week's trend of dipping below a million did not hold. For the week ending on August 15th, there was 1.1 million new unemployment claims filed. So we are now back to being over a million claims a week. At least we started the counter over again for the amount of straight weeks of over a million unemployment claims each each week. <laughs> yeah, this was actually quite unexpected. Everybody expected it to stay at least under a million and possibly drop from last week's number of 960,000. So, yikes. And I'm wondering, and of course we don't really have any kind of robust data on this yet, but I'm wondering if this is something along the lines of what I've been worrying about, which is that once schools start reopening and start going back to school, and I say that in air quotes because most places are not going back to school in the traditional sense, if we wouldn't see some of those unemployment numbers creep back up due to the fact that since schools are no longer physically in session for the most part in the United States, if all of those support staff that would normally be in building would now find themselves unemployed because obviously if the school itself is not physically open, then all of that support staff does not need to be at the school. So I don't really know what those people are going to do. I don't know if that is adding to these numbers. I guess we shall find out at some point in the future because I'm sure somebody is compiling data on that right now to find out exactly what sectors are being hit more now than they were perhaps earlier in the summer. Um, as far as like states opening and stuff, there's really not been anything new on that front. I don't know of anybody who's really locked back down to where it would start affecting unemployment numbers in that way. So we shall see. Uh, it's just still so bad. And I did find out some information about how the new federal unemployment assistance is supposed to be supposed to be being implemented. And this is the one that Trump EO'd into existence. Um, this program is very weird and convoluted, which is shocker, right? Um, basically, how this works is that your particular state has to go apply for the money. And from what I'm able to understand, only a handful of states have applied. I think Utah is the only one as of this recording that has actually gotten any of the money. And like I've explained before, when I told you guys about the executive order, basically how this is supposed to work is that technically the the federal government is supposed to be adding in an additional 400 a week. In reality, it's an additional 300 because they allowed the states to offset 100 of that by, say, if you're already getting 
state unemployment assistance that can be applied up to $100 against your federal unemployment assistance. So it really adds out to an extra $300 for you. But states are still having issues with the application process. Um, There are some states that are opting out because they just they cannot match those funds because they just don't have the money. So it's very patchy. It's very spotty. The vast majority of Americans do not have access to this money yet. I don't know if and when you will, because this is a finite amount of money. This is being taken out of the FEMA disaster fund, which, oh, by the way, it looks like um, two hurricanes are about to make landfall in the United States in the same place. And that place happens to be Louisiana. So might have been a little premature taking money out of the disaster fund there. But the sum of money was only, well, I say only obviously it's it's still a large amount of money but we're talking 45 million dollars and so obviously that is very finite and when we did the math on it technically the eo says it's supposed to go on until december 31st or until the money runs out well when the money runs out equated out to about roughly five weeks so I I don't know how this is going to work implementation wise I don't know who is going to see what money and when It's really dependent on what state you're in. So you might want to look into that if you are somebody who is still on unemployment and you're looking for that federal unemployment assistance. Yeah, I don't know if you're getting it. You might want to get with your state's unemployment assistance program and figure out what the status of that is. And the payments are supposed to be retroactive to August. But like I said, There's in theory, and then there's in practice, and of course, if the money is not in your bank account right now, it really doesn't matter when the payments are supposed to be retroactive to, because you don't have the money, so it's really kind of an academic discussion for you. If you are somebody who is like, I still don't have a job, and now I can't pay my bills. So, how that's going to work, I don't know. Um, Congress did, well, not Congress, the House came in for an emergency session over the weekend, and they passed a bill to get more funding to USPS for the mail-in voting. And it's a ridiculous sum of money. I forget the exact dollars. But they also unanimously voted in the House to make sure USCIS has the appropriate funding. That is the Customs and Immigration Service, the paperwork arm of our immigration system. So again, all of this is in the House. Whether any of this will actually pass the Senate, I don't know. I... Um, because obviously the House is controlled by the Democrats and the the Senate is controlled by Republicans. And even if it makes it past the Senate, who is to say that Trump will sign off on any of this? He has already been very open about how he does not wish to give USPS any more funding. And I don't think he's going to be super keen on giving USCIS any more funding because I still think that the whole point of this was to get USCIS to close down one way or the other. So... Fingers crossed, but there's still a lot that remains to be seen, and I'm not entirely sure when the Senate will be back in session again. Technically, Congress is on recess right now, so I'm not entirely sure when they will be taking up either one of those bills or anything else related to anything pandemic-related or anything involving any kind of stimulus packages or any kind of other federal unemployment assistance. So, yeah, fingers crossed for everybody who is unemployed and especially the 1.1 million people who have now joined the unemployment rolls over the past week, who now have to try to figure out exactly where the hell they stand and what 
what kind of money is going to be coming in here? Because at this point, honestly, I've got no clue. I don't know what to tell most of y'all because it all seems very up in the air. It's very erratic, which of course, like everything this administration does, nobody sat down and actually thought anything through and implemented any kind of logistical plan to carry forth anything. We just kind of slapdash through everything and hope it all works out and it rarely ever does. So anyway, moving on to the big news from this past week, and that is the Democratic National Convention, which as I'm sure everybody noticed took place over the past Monday through Thursday. And the way they handled it, obviously, it was completely online, completely virtual. And the parts that were aired, and for what it's worth, they had party business going on all day. And I'm sure if you went to, like, the DNC's actual feed, you could watch, like, the various caucuses and stuff like that. But the the main part that everybody typically watches was between 9 and 11 p.m. Monday through Thursday. Which, okay, I mean, I can handle that. I mean, that's two hours a night for four nights. That's not, not horrible, not bad. And so day one, we had various and assorted people. I'm not going to go over everybody that attended this because there was a lot. There was a lot of speeches. There was a lot of different stories, a lot of different people. And watching it kind of as piecemeal day by day, it didn't make a lot of sense to me where exactly the whole theme of this convention was going. But by the time we got to the end, it was kind of like, oh, okay, now I understand why this person got this much screen time, this person got that much screen time, and the emphasis that was placed on certain things over other things. But the two standouts from the first day were Bernie Sanders, which obviously, being as he was the candidate that well, the most prominent candidate that did not make it to be the presumptive nominee. He had a speech and his was about, if memory serves, I think it was about eight minutes long. And that's that's also another great thing about this format was the time, but we'll get to that. But his speech was about eight minutes long and it really more focused on promoting some policy And that's another kind of knock that people have had about this particular convention is that it was extremely light on policy discussion. But basically, Bernie went out there and did, you know, what what he's supposed to do, which is you promote Joe Biden. He put out there all the things that Joe Biden supports, like a $15 minimum wage and the Green New Deal and and universal health care and yada, yada, yada. You know, just basically Bernie doing what he being a good soldier, basically. I mean, and I can't, I mean, it is what it is for him at this point. I don't know what else he was supposed to do, but it was interesting in that he was the first one to really strike that tone of things are too dire right now and it is too important to not vote for Biden. And it felt like to me when I was watching his particular speech. And this is a topic that came up and a theme that came up over and over again was that this is, it is, the stakes are too high to not vote for Joe Biden. It felt to me like he was speaking to his wing of the party and reminding them that it is too important to not vote for Joe Biden. Because there has been grumblings, obviously, amongst various parts of the progressive left about Obviously not liking this particular ticket, which uh, there's nothing here for them to like. I've I discussed that in the last episode and kind of will be discussing that in an upcoming piece that you will be seeing sometime next week. 
Anywho, but it seemed to me like, like kind of an admonishment that this is not the year that you go vote for the Green Party or that you stay home or you do some kind of write-in vote or whatever. You need to go vote for Joe Biden. Like, you get your shit together, go vote for Joe Biden. Don't pull any malarkey, don't pull any bullshit. So that that was interesting. And I don't, I didn't see a lot of reaction from the left about his speech. I mean, it just, it, it like I said, it is what it is. I mean, it's Bernie doing what he's supposed to do. And the, there was some chatter about how Bernie is reacting in 2020 to this as versus how he reacted in 2016, where he was notably rather reluctant to get on the Hillary train and to support her full-throatedly. And there was always discussion about how that might have cost Hillary a little bit. So it seems like Bernie is not playing that game this year. So there is that. But the keynote from night one was Michelle Obama. And I was actually rather surprised by her speech. Um, a lot of people afterwards were kind of wondering if this was her political coming out speech. Because it had very much that vibe of somebody kind of announcing their presence. And like I said, it was a very good speech. She delivered it very well, especially for someone who's not super used to speaking in that manner of being on camera and giving a political speech. I feel like she did a very good job. And so I'm wondering if we're not going to be seeing more of Michelle in the future, if she is going to be getting more involved in politics, despite how much she claims in her speech to hate politics. But here you are giving a keynote at the DNC. So yeah, that was that was kind of surprising. That took a lot of people by surprise. So Hey, maybe we might be seeing more of Michelle Obama in the future. Moving on to day two, um, the the kind of notable spots from this one were Chuck Schumer in his speech, kind of fulfilling the same role that Bernie filled on day one as being the person that is explaining to us what exactly Joe Biden's policy positions are. And notably, um, Bernie... And Chuck were the only people to really discuss what Joe Biden's policies were in any kind of concrete fashion. So there was that. Um, the the thing, kind of the big takeaway from day two was the state roll call, which this is the part of the Democratic National Convention that is technically party business. Like you have to do certain things for your nominee to be official. And part of making your nominee official is doing the state-by-state roll call, which in a normal convention is nothing worth writing home about. It's a bunch of people literally on the floor at the convention yelling things. It's, it's really not all that fascinating. But how they did it this year, because obviously we had a virtual convention, was that each state filmed a little short, like minute, minute and a half, little video that obviously is my, the state of blah, 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 nominates Joe Biden to be the Democratic nominee for president of the United States, but each state kind of got a little time to show their little flair and to do, to, to kind of show their personality and show their state. And uh, some people made fun of it and thought it was just kind of cheesy and dumb. Personally, I think it's cute. Like I didn't sit there and watch all of them because obviously I already knew that Joe Biden was going to be the nominee by the end of that. But I thought it was kind of a fun and entertaining way to 
square the circle of having to actually conduct party business, like having to do the actual like work that would normally be happening at the DNC to make the nomination official, but also kind of keep it kind of fun and lighthearted and let each state kind of have, have their moment. I thought that was cute. Like, I thought it was nice. It, it was a good way of handling that particular situation. And for what it's worth, I mean, and I didn't watch the the daytime coverage, so there might have been more coverage of actual party business, but that's really the only part of the convention, at least in the primetime kind of lineup of things, that was official party business. So that that was nice. I, I liked how they handled that. And then night two's keynote speaker was Jill Biden, Joe Biden's wife. And this was the one where I kind of like questioned this because it started off with kind of like this introductory glamour reel explaining who Jill Biden is. And I'm sitting there and I'm I'm watching this. I'm like, first of all, anybody who cares to know who Jill Biden is already knows. I mean, she's Dr. Jill. She's Joe Biden's wife. She was she was second lady for eight years Everybody kind of already knows her backstory. So I'm sitting here and I'm like, why am I, why are we watching this? What is, what is this? I'm, I'm very confused as to why we needed this whole preamble to her speech. And then her speech focused a lot on education, which makes sense. She is an educator. She's a teacher. And she did famously keep teaching during her term as second lady. So that was a natural fit for her to be the one to kind of have that conversation about education, especially education right now. And so that that was fine. And that was one, like I said, I was confused. But then as the rest of the convention went on, I kind of understood where they were going with that, of this, this idea of presenting Jill Biden in this way. So moving on, we get to day three of the convention and this is the day where obviously the keynote speaker is Kamala Harris because she is the uh, the vice presidential nominee. But before her speech, uh, we had Barack Obama was really the most notable person from day three, possibly even more so than Kamala, because this was the first time Bar- Barack Obama ever actually openly attacked Trump in public. And he did, in his speech, openly attack Trump. The money line was that you elected a reality TV show, a reality TV star as president, and so now you've got a reality TV show administration. Which ain't nothing I haven't ever said before, but people were kind of taken aback because they were like, oh, wow, this is the first time that Obama's really ever spoken on Trump in that way. And it was fascinating to see the response to that because... The idea of past presidents commenting on current presidents being something of a bit of a taboo is a fairly recent phenomenon. Like it didn't used to be super duper common, but it wasn't uncommon to see presidents comment on current presidents. The president that really kind of started the trend of not commenting was W. And this is probably one of the most graceful things that W ever did was that when he left the White House, he pretty much dropped out of public life, period. He did not publicly comment on much of anything. He went home to Crawford. He stayed on the ranch. He he paints. He's got a book coming out and an exhibit that goes along with the book. But famously, he did not comment 
on politics anymore. He did not comment on the presidency. He did not comment on anything that Obama was doing one way or the other. His attitude kind of seemed to be like, it's not my job anymore, and I'm not going to critique the man that's doing the job, which I think is a fairly classy way of handling things. And up until this speech, that's pretty much how Obama handled the Trump administration was basically just not saying much of anything at all one way or the other, at least not in public. So people were pretty, pretty surprised at that. But hey, I mean, the the theme of the convention, or at least one of the main themes was that Donald Trump is an awful, horrible, no good president, which it's kind of hard to argue that. <laughs> I mean, they ain't wrong. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's obviously, I mean, it doesn't need to be said, but hey, I might as well go ahead and say it out loud while we're here and while we're running against him. <laughs> Since now there's actually like a record of things for the Democrats to run against when it comes to Donald Trump. Although they still kind of went with the character angle. We'll we'll talk about that once we've made it through all the other days of the, the convention here. But like I said, the keynote for night three was Kamala Harris and her speech was perfectly fine. I mean, it's the speech you would have expected her to give in that moment. It was, it, it was nice. And part of it that, again, I was kind of confused about in the moment, but now I understand, was the, the amount of discussion about her her background, her backstory, how her parents were immigrants and they met while they were marching for civil rights. And then her mom was a single mom and then she raised her and her sister and you know, do, 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 do. And I'm like, okay, that's great. I'm sure any, like I, like, like I felt about Jill Biden, I'm like, anybody who wanted to know that probably already knows that because Kamala Harris was just a Democratic primary nominee. Like, we already had this discussion, so why are we having it again? But it was a fine enough speech. I mean, obviously, not going to discuss her record as a prosecutor or an attorney general in California, although she did bring up that time briefly in order to bring up her friendship with Bo Biden, who was, while she was the attorney general of California, he was the attorney general of Delaware, and how they became friends while they were coordinating or talking to each other about how to help their states during the Great Recession and, and all everything. And I, I'm like, okay, that's that's nice. You and the Bidens are friends. That's lovely. I'm happy for you. And again, that was one of those, I'm like, why am I, why am I hearing about this right now? But again, we will get there because there was definitely, by the end of the convention, the theme was a lot more apparent than it was in the beginning and middle of the convention. So anyway, day four, last day of the convention. This day, I felt like at least for the primetime coverage, was kind of running out of steam. And maybe it was just me kind of getting tired of watching a lot of the same thing over and over again, because there was a lot of of like, you know, man on the street, human interest stuff. And night four felt very heavy on that for me. So I was kind of like, uh, it kind of felt like they were padding it out because really the whole point of the last night was Joe Biden's acceptance speech. But one notable thing that was rather amusing about night four was that in the middle there, um, after it was after Pete Buttigieg's speech, there was like this Zoom roundtable of 
Buttigieg, Booker, Warren, Klobuchar. I think Yang was there too, and Beto. Um, basically, like, talking about their favorite Joe Biden memory moments from the campaign. And it's like, wait a minute. Did Joe Biden just die in the middle of this convention and we're doing it in memory here? Like, what the hell is this? And it was just like, what the fuck am I looking at? It was really, it was a Zoom roundtable. Like, if you've seen a Zoom roundtable, that's exactly what this looked like. And it was just like, wait, what? Uh, okay, um, this is weird. This is slightly awkward. <laughs> what is going on? But anyway, we finally make it to Joe Biden's acceptance speech. Okay, here is where perhaps the soft bigotry of low expectations comes in. It was actually pretty good. It didn't suck, which a lot of people, especially Republicans, were kind of hyping this. It's like, oh, Joe Biden's brain is mush and he's not going to be able to make it through an acceptance speech. He did a fairly good job. And I noted at the time, and this is kind of in contrast to his his appearances at the primary debates, was that it was Joe Biden in reverse. Usually, like, at the debates, he would come out very strong, very, very fiery, and then as the debate wears on, kind of kind of slow down a little bit, kind of kind of peter out a bit. This speech for me, I felt like in the beginning was very slow. And I was kind of getting worried. I'm like, oh boy, this is this might be a little rough. But then about mid-speech, he's kind of started picking up speed. He got he got feisty in a couple places. He got a little little noticeably angry, which Joe Biden does this. And so as the speech wore on, it actually kind of picked up steam and he kind of picked up steam. So by the time the end of the speech rolls around, it, it was okay. Like, fine, enough. Again, not not a single not a single policy discussion anywhere in that speech other than apparently Joe Biden seems to think that if he becomes president, he can do a nationwide mask mandate, which no, you can't. Yeah, that's not that's not a good idea because that's going to just cause every state that doesn't want to participate to sue you. And so maybe that's not the best look in the first hundred days of your presidency to have a bunch of states suing the federal government. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, you can't really do a nationwide mask mandate. We've already had this discussion before. Every time somebody brings it up in relationship to how Trump should do a nationwide mask mandate, it's like we have to explain again, well, you can't do that because you have federalism and you have states' rights issues and each state has the right to set the policy for their particular state. And so, yeah, no, that's probably going to be a no-go. But at the end of the speech, we had like the weird spectacle of, the, the happy coming together of the, the presidential and vice presidential nominee, nominee and their spouses and their children. And that's normally the part of the convention where you have the balloons and the confetti and the people clapping and cheering and everything's rah-rah. But the problem is, because of COVID, um, there were people in the room for Biden's speech. But it was like a handful of reporters who were socially distanced. Obviously, there wasn't a crowd and there was no confetti and no balloons because that would have just been extra super weird to just have all of that in a somewhat empty, quiet room. <laughs> but you still had those like scenes of like jubilation, like, yay, we did it. woohoo! But then there's like no, no cheering, no crowds, no, no other, no light shows, no nothing. Like it was just, it was kind of weird in the way that a lot of things are weird to watch now. Like watching professional sports is weird now because there's no crowd. So, like, you have people performing, 
but then you have nobody in the crowd like making any kind of noise or responding. So it's kind of like this surreal sort of situation. So that brings us to the end of the convention. Now, here is where eventually everything kind of tied together for me around day three-ish when it became abundant where the the DNC was going with this. This convention existed not necessarily to highlight policy differences between Democrats and Republicans or against or the, the Democratic platform and the Republican platform. This was about the character of the nominees in question and the party in general. And this is where this is where a lot of stuff started making sense to me. I'm like, okay, now I understand why we had this whole long Dr. Jill introduction thing. It was in the service of being like, here is Joe Biden's very normal wife who is a doctor and a teacher and does very normal things all the time because she's a normal woman. And then here's Kamala Harris, who again, super normal person, has a normal backstory. Her parents were immigrants. They separated when she was young. She had a single mom, you know, like a lot of people. And then here's Joe Biden, super normal dude, who in his little like glamour real introduction before his speech, they went over Joe Biden's backstory, which again, if you didn't already know it, I don't, I don't know how you couldn't at this point, but his whole backstory about how as a young man, he lost his first wife and his two daughters in a car accident. And then he was a single dad for a while. And then he met Jill and then they kind of just put the family back together. And now, and then, then he lost, he, he lost Bo and then, you know, that was sad. And so Joe Biden is a very super normal, cool dude who has had a lot of life experiences and has suffered a lot of loss and has been been a single dad and how he had to kind of like juggle being a single dad and also going to DC and how he took the train back and forth two hours each way every day so we can go home to his kids and you know, like just the showing that this is a super normal person in contrast to the Trumps who think whatever you will about Melania I mean Hey, you grow up poor in a poor country, you're going to grab onto a meal ticket too. I ain't even mad at her. And then obviously Donald Trump, who was born wealthy, like he was born into the 1%. This is not somebody who's ever been a single dad or had to commute or really even had to work. He's just Donald Trump. So once once you kind of understand where this convention was going as far as the presentation of the candidates and of the party itself. Also going out of the way to show how inclusive and diversive the party is. And look at all these, all these people of color. Look at all these women. And there was plenty of talk about systematic racism and about the situations, obviously with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and policing and all of that good stuff. Basically just showing like, Hey, look, we're super normal people who care about other people. So therefore you should vote for us instead of this other shit show over here that is full of awful, horrible, no good people. So that was the the strategic choice that the DNC made this year, which is kind of in contrast to how they had handled that sort of 
dichotomy between policy and personality in the past, especially during the Obama years, where it was more presented that personality doesn't matter, it's the policies that matter. So there was that notable shift to not really putting any kind of emphasis on policy. And I, I, I understand where they were going with that. I don't know as if they should have left out policy as much as they did, especially since, I mean, there, there are some stark policy differences between the Joe Biden platform and the Donald Trump platform. Some there's, there's some that there's no daylight in between at all, but yeah, just, it was interesting that there wasn't really any kind of discussion of policy. I mean, there was no mention no mention whatsoever of foreign policy. Like they had Tammy Duckworth, who lost both of her legs in Iraq, giving a speech about Russian interference. Like, you could have used her to give a speech about pulling out of the Middle East. No, nothing on foreign policy whatsoever. I mean, China was barely mentioned. Nothing about foreign policy, nothing about economic policy, just some some vague nods to like federal minimum wage and climate change legislation, but nothing concrete. And I was just like, oh, okay, I guess this is what we're doing here in 2020. But my pros and cons for the DNC. First off, I liked this format. Honestly, I can rock two hours And not even really two hours, because depending on what feed you watched, and I used the PBS NewsHour feed that was streaming through YouTube, each each television station kind of dipped in and out at will as to what they were and were not actually like covering live. And so the, the PBS feed really dipped out of a lot of the more fluffy entertainment stuff and kind of popped back in when there was like substantial speeches happening, like obviously keynote speeches, um, important speakers, stuff like that. So I kind of got to gloss over a lot of the more fluffy stuff, which I personally liked. And of course, you could do that too, because obviously you, you're watching at home, you can kind of dip in and out at will. But keeping it to two hours a night, I feel like was a very, very smart choice. Because there's just, I mean, and this was, uh, this was one of my critiques of the Democratic debates, especially in the first couple of rounds. It's like, you cannot, you cannot expect people to make massive time commitments to this. Like, you you can't expect people, like, a lot of those early debates, it was four hours over two nights. And it's not like, those were, like, a hard two hours. Like, this right here each night, honestly, it went on for two hours a night. I watched probably an hour-ish of each one, like just because, like I said, how PBS handled it. I didn't watch the whole thing. Whereas with the debates, like you, you were locked in for four hours. Like that was, that was too much. So this way I feel like was a really good way of handling it for people who don't want to sit there and watch the whole damn thing. Like you could just watch the important parts. And even for what it's worth, you don't technically have to watch it when it's airing, I mean, you can go on YouTube and watch pretty much anyone's speech you want whenever you feel like it, which I think that's pretty cool. And the the funny thing that happened is because a lot of these speeches were pre-recorded, which is another nice thing in that you can control time much easier that way. Like you can you can keep something on schedule when 
most of your stuff is pre-recorded. So that's another nice thing. You don't have to worry about things running over time. When they say it's going to be 9 to 11, it's going to be 9 to 11. Like, you know, at like 11.05, you're you're done. Like, you, you're done for the evening. So trust me, as somebody who sat there and watched the primary debates, some of which ran 20, 25 minutes over, it is a blessing to know when something is going to end. But it also helped, I think, humanize a lot of the speakers because a lot of people were recording from home because obviously you can't really go to a studio right now. You can't really record in public. So a lot of these people were recording in their homes like the rest of us, like the rest of us do. Like you're in your, you're in your kitchen, you're in your living room, you're in your office, you're in front of your credibility bookshelf, you're wherever you can find enough decent lighting and a decent enough background to film against in your home, which is, it's kind of cool. It's, it, it kind of demystifies the process, I think, a little bit to where it's not quite so stuffy. Like these are people in their homes, just like the rest of us. And on the on the topic of being able to pre-record speeches and to not have audiences, the, the speeches themselves, everyone's speech is pretty darn short. And I, I say that not as like a knock, but as a great thing, because once, once you just have somebody sitting in front of, be it an actual camera, their cell phone, their tablet, whatever they're, whatever they're filming on and just giving the speech, it goes a lot faster when you don't have to stop for applause or for any kind of dramatic pauses or anything like that. The speeches just go, you just give your speech and you keep it moving. Even Joe Biden's speech, which obviously was the longest speech at the convention, clocked in at 24 and a half minutes, which obviously if this was an in-person speech with a crowd of people, it probably would have been an hour plus because of all the pauses and interruptions that happen when you're speaking live. So I would like to see some way of preserving something of this format in the future, because like I said, it's just, it's so nice. It's so nice to not sit through an hour speech. (laughs) When you've had to do it, over and over and over again. It's just like, it's so nice. It's like, oh, wait, oh, look, it's five minutes and you're done with your speech. That's great. I am so relieved. (laughs) So I actually, I liked this format for those reasons. Now for the cons, and this isn't really a knock against like the programming or anything, but just it probably just is how it is, was that because of kind of the way the the presenters were and kind of the like I said like, like human interest stuff and stuff like that it kind of did after a certain point have a very telethonish kind of feel because the the general vibe of the convention was generally speaking positive which that is a good thing I'm I'm happy for that that's definitely a stark contrast to what I'm sure is the dystopian hellscape that I will have to put myself through next week when I watch the RNC. But it was like this almost like too chipper kind of vibe where it's like, yeah, come on, gang. I know things suck now, but all you got to do is just vote for Joe Biden and everything's going to be great. Which, I mean, like I said, I guess it's better than what I'm about to have to sit through. But <laughs> it, it does great after a while because it's a little like, okay, guys, it's it's not going to be quite that simple. But I understand that this is a convention and that we're supposed to be encouraging people and firing them up to go vote. So, okay, I'm all right, fine. 
and that's that's about it. I mean, honestly, I enjoyed it. Like, I, I like this format. I, I know we won't keep it in the future. I mean, I know we will go back to in-person conventions. And I have certainly spoken and written on that topic, too, about the the kind of pros and cons between doing things online and in person. And I mean, there are certain parts of a, a political convention that you just can't duplicate online. Like it has to be done in person. So, but for what it's worth, I think the DNC handled this as well as possible. I mean, I think that the production value is decent. I feel like everybody participating did a fairly good job. It was put together very well. It was packaged well. So yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't really complain about too much about this. So, but next week, this upcoming week, is the Republican National Convention. <laughs> I'm not looking forward to this. I will do it, though. I do this for you. I certainly don't do it for my own mental health. I do it for you, the listener. And it has come out what, as of right now, the speaker lineup is supposed to be for the RNC, which... I I expected there to be a fairly sharp contrast between the DNC and RNC on this one because the DNC actually was fairly heavy on even having Republicans speak on how they are going to vote for Joe Biden and how they support Joe Biden. You had Cindy McCain doing a speech. You had Colin Powell doing a speech. There was a couple of other people in there, but it was notably a more bipartisan effort than anything I expect out of the RNC, but I wasn't expecting it to be quite as bad as it is allegedly going to be. Because as of right now, um, about half the speakers slated for the RNC have the same last name. Guess what that last name is? Yeah. <laughs> and apparently, um, Trump is supposed to be speaking every night of this convention for four days. Every fucking night. That's <laughs> And y'all know I avoid this man. I, I try to avoid his speeches, his tweets, all of this shit because none of it is productive. And now I'm going to have to watch four nights of this. There's going to be a lot of drinking in my house. A lot of drinking. And this is going to be absurd. But of course, I will do this for you so that I can report on it. And I do the things so that you don't have to do them. So obviously, we'll be more on that next week. But I want to end this week's episode with a very surprise arrest that I don't think anybody saw coming. On Thursday, Steve Bannon was arrested for fraud. And let me go back and explain this. I'm sure everybody remembers the stupid, dumb GoFundMe campaign, the We Build This Wall campaign, where (laughs) Steve Bannon and a couple of other people got together and started this harebrained cockamamie scheme to privately fund a border wall. And somehow or another, I swear to God, like there's almost nobody to be sympathetic for in this story. They raised over $25 million, $25 million to privately fund a fucking border wall. And at the time that this was going on, there was plenty of us who were like, This has got to be the biggest scam of life. Like, this is not even logistically possible. Like, if you have any clue of what the federal government has had to try to go through in order to build the official wall, as far as gaining land, eminent domain, access, making sure that you're not 
cutting through wildlife preserves and that you're paying the right amount of money for land, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, logistically speaking, there's not a lot of way that a private organization could build a border wall, like just logistics, not to mention the amount of money involved. Like the federal government at this point has already spent over a billion, like $25 million is a lot of money. $25 million is not going to get you shit in the way of a border wall. So (laughs) it seemed pretty obvious to a lot of us off the rip that, yeah, this is a giant scam. Like what is wrong with you people What kind of racist, xenophobic brainworms do you have that you're giving money to this? Well, guess what? It was a big fucking scam. (laughs) Imagine that. Um, I had been reporting, gosh, I am so bad at time, but probably at this point, almost a year ago now, of people asking, donors asking, like, okay, where is the wall that we paid for? Because it doesn't exist, it doesn't seem. And so they built, like, some tiny dinky portion that even Trump was like, this is just meant to embarrass me. (laughs) Even Trump distanced himself from this, which, in retrospect, makes me wonder if somebody didn't tip him off to this investigation that was going on into the project and the fate of the funds because he said this about a month, maybe two months ago. Basically, he made a tweet kind of denigrating their efforts and being like, this wall is just like, this this private border wall is embarrassing. Like, it's awful. Like, <laughs> So I wonder if he might have known something that the rest of us didn't know. But anyway, so here's how this goes down. The U.S. Postal Inspector Service shows up to arrest Steve Bannon. Steve is on the mega yacht of an alleged Chinese dissident billionaire. I say alleged because there seems to be some question about how dissident this guy really is. So he's on the mega yacht of a Chinese billionaire in Connecticut. And so they show up to arrest him off of this boat. You can't make this shit up, people. You cannot make this stuff up. This is welcome to the Trump administration. So anyway, they arrest him. He was arraigned Friday. It was either Thursday or Friday. Um, as it stands right now, his bond is $5 million. He has to put up $1.75 million of it, which by the way, um, <clears throat> I can already tell you where a million of it could possibly come from because he is accused of taking $1 million from the, the wall fund to fund what the fuck ever. Um, there's other co-indicted peoples who are also accused of taking money from the GoFundMe account to purchase things like boats and houses and cars and things that are not private border walls. So, <sighs> grifter's gonna grift. That's about all you can say about that. And that has been... Kind of the key highlight of the Trump administration is that it seems that everybody involved is there to make a quick buck. And it really doesn't make any sense for Steve Bannon to have put himself in this position because he was already a millionaire. Like, he's already rich. Like, dude, what the fuck? What is wrong with you? Like, you're going to go do, like, federal prison time for this? Have you lost your damn mind? But it is indicative of kind of one of the kind of ugly truths about 
grifters and especially those who kind of work within the populist movement as grifters, which this, I mean, let's face it, that's, there's nothing else to call this. This was straight up grift. Like you just took money from people for a project that you, you had to know. They had to know they couldn't do. Well, like there's no way to not know that. Like I just, I, no, but that's, that's not even how this works. Anywho. So you take all this money from people, you go spend it on what the hell ever, like, you know, you're going to get caught. I don't, I don't understand. Especially if you're not poor, like if you're already rich, why would you bother? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me other than you're so arrogant that you think that you can get away with fleecing the rubes for whatever amount of money. And that's really what the basis of grift is, is the idea that you, grifter person, think that you are so much smarter and better than the people that you're fleecing that you can take their money. That's what it is. And that's what so much of this administration is and so many people involved in it and so many people who have gotten their come up during the Trump administration. It's all about the money. It's all about making that quick buck. There's there's no, there's, you don't care about these people. You don't care about the little guy. Clearly, I mean, you you just took $25 million and disappeared it somewhere from people who I imagine were not millionaires. I mean, granted, they're, Probably a bunch of racist scumbags, but they're racist scumbags who just got defrauded from a lot of money. So it's a little hard to feel bad for them, but you know, it's, it's still, it's still bad. Like they still got defrauded and that's still illegal, even though they're probably assholes and fools and their money deserve to be parted, but still, still bad, still illegal. So we shall see. What ends up happening with that? I hope it goes to trial. My God, I want to see discovery on this so bad. I want to see the evidence. I want to see like, I want to see transcripts. I, I, I want to hear like voicemails. I want to see text messages. I want to see all this shit. This is going to be so great. Oh my God, it's going to be so funny. But yeah, just kind of a, kind of a surprise and kind of a juxtaposition as to Everything else that happened this week, we're, we're starting to see like people starting to get punished for their griftery ass activities. And I don't imagine that's going to stop anytime soon. So like I said, we shall see what happens with this. I mean, I'm, I don't, I mean, obviously he could plea out if he's offered a plea deal, which I don't know, because this is all, this is all also going through Southern District of New York. And we know how the Southern District of New York feels about the Trump administration. And since they have been the ones to handle the vast amount of cases of people being charged with federal crimes in the Trump administration, it's just, it's, it's wild. Like under normal circumstances, this would be a massive story, but now Bannon is like, what, the dozenth person to be accused of federal crimes that has ties to the Trump administration. Like, I don't even know what to say about that anymore. Other than this is what happens. Like Obama said, this is what happens when you elect a reality TV star as president, you get a reality TV presidency, including people who are there for their own selfish purposes to make their own money not necessarily to do anything for anybody else, just like everybody else who goes on reality television. Funny how that works, right? So anyway, 
At this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up because this has already gone a bit longer than I expected. So if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.